This is Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America, the podcast that's half science, half history, and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But because I'm not from the Midwest, each episode, after I do the research, then I sit down with someone who is from here, and together we explore famous persons, products, and cultural trends that got their start in the middle of America. And my special guest in the studio today is Dr. Danae Dinkle, Associate Professor in the School of Health and Kinesiology, part of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Hi, Danae. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming in. And I've asked Danae here today because we are considering this our New Year's episode. And with resolutions in the air, we thought we would spend this hour talking about fitness. And we're going to get into some of the differences across genders and sexes in terms of fitness. So I thought that Danae would be able to help us parse out some of those differences. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I, on a personal level, I love being active and exercise. And I used to teach group fitness, kickboxing and strength training. And then I turned that into my profession as I teach and do research about how to help motivate people to be physically active all the way from babies to older people and their parents. So you mean our nerdiness can actually help us be more fit? Yes, definitely. I think you're more than qualified (laughs) for this episode. Okay, so in America right now, there is a boom of boutique fitness. And this refers to small gyms or workout studios with trained instructors teaching group classes specific to their brand. So like Orange Theory, Pure Bar, Soul Cycle, or the Barcode, things like that. And female fitness has become part of the branding for much of this industry. But believe it or not, this industry, sometimes called urban fitness because of its concentration in American cities, would likely not exist without a young girl raised in the small Midwestern town of Red Oak, Iowa. Gosh, my grandfather came over to Iowa from Sweden when he was 16. This is Judy Shepard Missit. She's the founder and CEO of one of the largest fitness franchises in the world. I remember sitting on my grandfather's lap and him saying to me, Now, Judy, you remember that you got to keep your feet on the ground and that nobody is any better than you, and you certainly aren't any better than anybody else. Well, if dancing counts as keeping your feet on the ground, that is exactly what she did. She started dancing at a very young age, and then she started her own business that has become a recognizable household name. I am the founder and the CEO of Jazzercise, which is a worldwide dance fitness program. Um, with about 8,500 franchisees all across uh, the globe. This is fascinating to me because I feel like it's one of these industries or one of these brands that has transformed against ages. I can remember going and sitting in a jazzercise class with my mom when I was a little kid. And And this was in, in Nebraska? Yeah, in Nebraska, in small town Nebraska, there was one One lady who was the group fitness instructor in our small town in Nebraska, and 
my mom would go and I can remember, you know, sitting in that class. And then I know I have friends today uh, who are Jazzercise instructors and or go to Jazzercise too. So it's just astounding that it's transformed against time, across time. And so Judy is the founding mother of Jazzercise and arguably she is one of the founding mothers of boutique female fitness in general. Of course, we do have to mention Jane Fonda here, (laughs) whose father, Henry Fonda, is from right here in Omaha. And she is credited with bringing fitness into women's homes. But in terms of developing a fitness program out in a community space centered around women's needs, Judy paved the way for this kind of business model. And she actually started teaching dance with her mother, helping with the business end of things, when she was just barely a teen, still in Red Oak, Iowa. When I was 13, I opened my own studio, and that was in the basement of my home. And because Red Oak was such a small town to make sure that Judy could keep taking dance lessons and not just teaching them, her mother had to get creative. She came to Omaha and she recruited instructors that were assistants in larger dance studios in Omaha to come to Red Oak, Iowa, where I was living, to teach dance classes for all the kids there, and of course for me as well. And it was actually super important for young Judy to keep dancing. In fact, it was doctor recommended because... I was pigeon-toed, and so the doctor said, oh gosh, a dance class would be great for her to help her with that difficult foot positioning, and so off I went. So as Judy danced and she taught more classes, she kept watching her mother handle the logistics of it all. All of the things that my mother did to enable me to take dance class and to have a dance studio, I really patterned a lot of that as I began to grow jazzercise. And I got facilities that were community. Little did my mother know that she would would be a very big influence in helping me grow my own business later on. I think especially when we think of Nebraska and Midwest and rural towns of that, you know, just finding one passionate person and probably wasn't just Judy taking these dance classes, but, you know, probably impacted a lot of other uh, kids in that area too. Yeah, I mean, the necessity that she played upon there, Mm -hmm. then, then the whole business strategy was built out of the necessity of not having anything accessible or not having enough accessible in the small town. And then that gave rise to Judy's business plan that is now worldwide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and m- making it super accessible was was really, really important for Jazzercise in the beginning. They were using parks and rec buildings, library basements, school gymnasiums. These were all spaces where as many women as possible could get there. To identify these places that would be open, um, you know, if it was a library basement, you know, to think about different ways you could use the spaces. Again, just coming out of necessity. Yeah. Actually, and yeah. so one of the first places, actually, where Judy started teaching was in a basement. It was the basement of her college dance teacher and mentor. So this was in 1969. And her idea, though, of jazz dance for fitness class did not take off immediately. I thought, you know, they, they're coming through, they're taking class, and then they leave. And it really bugged me because I thought, well, what am I doing wrong? So I thought, well, the only way you can find that out is to ask them. 
So, again, this is in 1969. She's left Red Oak. She's in college now, and she has this idea to start teaching these classes. But, you know, she's she's teaching as a young professional dancer, essentially. And it's not going so well. So she does. She asks the women who've, who've left her class why they won't come back. And they tell her. You, you are teaching it like we're going to go on and become professional dancers. And that's not who we are. And that's not what we want. We want to look like a professional dancer, but we don't want to go on and become one. And I thought, wow, that's a revelation. So she really starts listening and takes in this information. And then that is how the concept of jazzercise is then truly formed. So for her next class, she has a new plan. I turned people away from the mirror. I um, gave them lots of positive feedback. I uh, became uh, their mirror, actually, and picked great music, whatever was hot at that point in time. And they said, this is just what we want. I think, you know, with the training that she had and she kind of used those skills and getting participant feedback, she she created an environment that people wanted to come. And with that, you create relationships. So it's kind of like a two way street, right? Yeah. I mean, so many of these really big business model decisions that she needed to make, she made with the community that she had built. Even after her husband and her moved to California, the business model was always go back, ask the clients, what do they need? And, and also fostering that community mentality mentality within the the dance classes themselves. I think creating that, uh, for lack of a better word, tribe (laughs) that um, you create is it's a comfortable place to go. And maybe you do things with other women who have children your same age, that the same age that you have. And I think it it just feels right. It feels good. Man, Judy was on it. She was, you know, the founding mother of social support and physical activity. And I think one thing uh, that always tends to come across in in thinking of why people want to go to these classes is related to that social support and that stress relief, right? Yeah, and and on that note, there's actually some really fun research out there now about moving together, not just moving together in the same space, but moving in synchrony with each other. And that that in particular boosts social bonding and feelings of closeness. And some of these experiments, they've looked at it with lots of different kinds of exercise, Mm -hmm. rowing in particular, and uh, dance, of course, um, singing in a choir when you sway back and forth. And and. That is so cool to me because that seems like something the primal versions of of humans knew. I mean, we have danced together for a very long time. Yeah. And um, but it's cool to see it reflected in research yeah. now yeah. as well. It seems like these all these dance based classes are kind of onto something. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, we do know that through research that activity can also help cognitive benefits. More and more studies looking um, at school-age kids, and then as we grow older as well, how that activity can help reduce cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, we do see all ages and all genders taking advantage of boutique fitness, but when we do the numbers, the people who identify as women are most likely to choose group workout classes. And there there are a a lot of reasons for this, but much of it stems from this communal aspect that Judy tapped into really early on. 
because the fact is there are quite a few factors that make working out different across genders and sexes, right? So there, there's this obvious appeal of being part of a group that is empathetic to whatever your differences are. And so to help us understand this a little bit better is the host of the podcast, Dirty Strength Radio. I'm Sarah Smith. My business is Sarah Smith Strength. I have a number of different credentials in the fitness world, a master's in science, and I am a strength coach, a personal trainer, and functional pelvic health educator. And the pelvic floor, this is one of those factors that can affect your workout because it acts pretty differently depending on your sex assigned at birth. The pelvic floor is essentially the muscles and soft tissues that's in between your legs holding up your pelvic organs. But Sarah is the specialist, so I will let her tell us a little bit more about this area of the body. The pelvic floor is a awesome network of muscles that are more like a supple trampoline at the base of your core that respond to movement all day long every day. It does a lot of things that it provides support to your pelvic organs. So if you're female, that's your uterus, your rectum, and your bladder, and men, rectum and bladder. Um, and it stable, helps to stabilize the spine. It helps you to have stable hips. And it's also you know, in charge of making sure that you're not going to the bathroom during exercise, right, when you don't want to. So it's a really important piece of the body. And it's often neglected, and when it's not optimally conditioned, we start to see things like low back pain, tailbone pain, hip pain, issues, lots of knee pain, because it confers so much stability. And so if the pelvic floor isn't stable, then other more mobile parts of the body have to start to pitch in to help to stabilize the torso. So it's one of my favorite parts of the body. <laughs> So the pelvic floor, we've all got one, it's primarily made of muscles, and because the pelvic floor is involved in the reproduction and birthing process, the menstrual cycle hormones can lead to changes within the pelvic floor area on a monthly basis. So for many, this pelvic element can truly feel like a, like a moving target sometimes because of those hormonal fluctuations. But there are structural elements, too, that can affect your workout. Yes, the hormonal fluctuations definitely play a role. And then also the added variable of the vaginal canal. It can just be a bigger issue because you have another space in the, the network of the muscle that is the pelvic floor for things to fall into, right? So pelvic organ prolapse. Okay, so here are the stats. Roughly one quarter of women in the United States have some kind of pelvic floor dysfunction. And this dysfunction usually falls into one or more of three categories, urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, or pelvic organ prolapse. So yes, when organs that belong inside of you drop down. And yeah, pregnancy increases your risk for this, but still over 12% of women who have never had children report some kind of pelvic floor dysfunction. And of course, those are only the women who report it, the ones who go to their doctor and tell them that they're having trouble holding their pee, right? So in other words, this is not a rare condition. And I think this is huge. I think in the female fitness community, it's rarely discussed. I think it's becoming more prevalent thanks to people like Sarah. And I think there's more 
women female trainers who are willing to talk about this and say, hey, this is an issue. But I think oftentimes it's been kind of a like, haha, <laughs> or I don't want to talk about it at all, which may make me not want to go to some of these fitness classes or I'll only go in like these tight knit circles where people know and, you know, run to the bathroom multiple times or, you know, whenever, uh, again, it's something that's not often talked about in terms of pelvic floor. And if you're working with a male trainer who may not really understand those different facets of the uh, female body and, um, you know, it's not just women who have been pregnant. There are women who have not been pregnant who might be experiencing this and people just don't know. Yeah, I I feel like we need to take a moment to acknowledge that pelvic floor dysfunction, it's not like a broken foot. You know, mm-hmm. you're dealing with more emotions when you're talking about this kind of a thing. So again, it makes sense if you're dealing with these kind of an issue, issues, you're going to want to be in a community that even if you're not talking about it, that you feel like maybe they do understand. Yeah, definitely. To have that supportive community uh, to be able to discuss this is huge. And I think that's kind of what Judy hit on by creating this community within the exercise program that was about a lot more than burning calories. Yeah. And that, like you said, there has been a little bit of a shift recently talking about pelvic floor issues in recent decades. But historically, that's that has not been the case. It's interesting. A lot of the exercise programming, the research science that we have that we utilize to decide what we should be doing in the gym is from research conducted on men. But women physiologically respond different to training for a number of different reasons. Structurally, we're different. We have some differences in muscle composition and fat composition, how we fuel our bodies. But then also there's this giant variable of fertility and you know biologically women whether they're interested in it or not are designed to reproduce and so we have huge hormonal fluctuations over the course of the month which changes how we respond to training and exercise and because these monthly hormonal fluctuations that Sarah refers to serve the evolutionary purpose of preparing the body for pregnancy, this means that many times tendons and ligaments are being made temporarily more stretchy in response to these hormones. So we are talking about the pelvic area, yeah, but also the supporting tissues around the rib cage and even around the knees and hips. Those areas can also get stretchier in response to some of these hormones. And one of those hormones is called relaxin because of the effect that it has on tendons and ligaments. And this hormone is at its highest levels right around the middle of the menstrual cycle. And with pregnancy, it increases even more. Yeah, so relaxin is a hormone that is significantly higher in the body when you're either pregnant and or postpartum. So prioritizing quality of movement and not necessarily always speeding up exercise, but slowing it down to make sure we have really good form, neutral alignment, and not any like wonky movement mechanics is always important, but it's especially important during times when you're a little bit more on the stretchy side. 
I wish I would have known Sarah when I was <laughs> pregnant with my second. I would have made her tell me or, or worked with her to help me figure out some of those more functional movements. And I think that's why a lot of people are willing to pay for boutique fitness. Yeah, definitely. Because mm-hmm. it is cheaper than a personal trainer. Yeah. But you're still putting yourself in a room where there are people who are trained and you know that you can you can work out safely because of that. And so making the space where it feels okay and comfortable to make modifications. And that was something that Judy absolutely tapped into really early on. The people in our classes are welcoming, our instructors are welcoming, and there's no judgment. It's just come, enjoy one another, enjoy the music, enjoy the movements, and get the joy out of moving. That is so important, I think, to everyday life. That, again, just continues that social support, which helps to encourage people to maintain physical activity long term. And we still see this. Like, it is clearly something now research is telling us that it helps. But we saw it in the very beginning with Jazzercise, and we still see it now as boutique fitness continues to just boom in our country. So to get a perspective from some of the newer kids on the block, some newer franchises in the industry, I sat down with Casey Baum and Kaylee Rader. I'm Kaylee Rader. I'm Casey Baum, and we're the co-owners of the Barcode Dundee. Casey and Kaylee own and operate one of the Omaha locations of the Barcode, a national boutique fitness franchise. And full disclosure here, I work at their front desk, so that's how I know these women. I'm assuming you're taking their classes. I do take their classes from both (laughs) of them. So here they are talking about providing a safe space for women uh, before and after pregnancy. We'll see women that are pregnant in the all studio the way up all the way have up till they have the baby. <laughs> and then we just had someone come back who had a baby this summer. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I came twice this week and was like, yay. And it's like, you know, she can get back into it because like, she might have to still modify some, but she can come back into it and know that it'll be strong and safe for her and she won't probably hurt something that happened. You know, maybe her stomach is not as small. She might have to work up that ab wall again. But she can still do the class without feeling crappy about themselves. You mm-hmm. know, and that, that's a wrong word to say. But after you have a baby, your body changes. Yeah. You have heightened emotions. You might be all over the place, and you might not feel as good as you were about you. You did something awesome that is crazy that we even do this. And it's a recovery and a process And you should feel good about it. But sometimes when you come back to a gym and you are like, oh, look at everyone else and look at me. I mean, I'm lactating and like trying to squat at the same time. And I peed a little bit. I mean, it's okay. Come Mm -hmm. in. You know, we can change that. We can help Mm -hmm. you. We can give you those tools to clench a little tighter or like push your belly down or, you know, we can help with that. I think moms appreciate it. We see that they have babies and they come back. So we must be doing something right to have instructors who are knowledgeable about those factors. I think that's just huge. Um, you know, what Sarah was talking about with the pelvic floor and that Kaylee and Casey were talking about here is just to know about those modifications and to not just encourage moms to jump right back into it uh, because that's where a lot of injury can occur, especially moms with all those, we talked about hormone impact on the pelvic floor, but just hormone impact on your whole entire day. I think it's really easy for women and moms to be hard on themselves if they're not doing what they used to and and with those body changes that to just be able to come to a place where you feel good about what you're doing. And to be able to come to a place that doesn't compartmentalize everything, mm-hmm. that like that was your that was your pregnancy 
part of yourself or your reproductive self, but this is your workout self yeah. to go to a place that that wraps it all up into one big package that mm-hmm. is just your life now. Yeah. And, and I think it strikes me that these boutique fitness places, because they are so small and they are community based around their little cohort of, of clients, they're really able to hyper focus on those clients. So if you're marketing towards women, that's going to include pregnancy a lot of the times, which means it's also going to include childcare. And that is another factor that Judy latched onto really early on. She noticed this is a factor. Childcare is an issue standing in the way of a lot of women and their fitness. So she did something about it. I had a daughter. She was three years old then. And I thought, I know there are a lot of other women who have children and, and they can't afford to get a babysitter. So I'm just going to provide childcare for them. Now, having childcare available during the workout class is a structure that is replicated in much of the boutique fitness industry. And we have Judy and her sister-in-law to thank for it. My sister-in-law, kindly enough, volunteered to come with me and be the babysitter. And so I bought a whole bunch of toys. And at that point, I had a little Honda hatchback. It was yellow, I remember that. And so I'd open up that hatchback and put in all those toys and then also all of my music and, you know, my sound equipment and everything. I had to bring all that with me. And so I'd go and I'd set up for class and the moms would come and they'd find out there was childcare and they were so happy. It was so wonderful. And we'd charge like 50 cents or something a quarter a child. And of course, we still have it available today as do many other programs. Yeah, childcare is huge. I mean, we see that in research as one of the biggest barriers to any type of health promotion intervention that if kids aren't included, and especially, you know, moms feel sometimes it can be hard for them to make the decision to do something for themselves and not for their child. So if you can bring your child and have that option, that is just huge. And, and it's something that people are definitely willing to pay for and has kind of become more of a staple in the industry. Uh, but that's not all that we have Judy to thank for. Uh, we also have to give her a hand for helping to promote things like cordless microphones for instructors, also branded workout clothing. But the other big game-changing concept that we have to look to Judy for was just this concept of franchising. Even though franchising is not a uniquely Judy concept, the fact that she chose franchise for the Jazzercise model arguably affected the industry as a whole. Here's Judy again. In the early 80s, I had over a thousand instructors. And of course, when you have that much going on, you know you have to develop a bit of a business model, which I had done. But then as the business grew, it became clear that she really no longer was fitting into the independent contractor model. So Judy had a choice to make. Between employee or franchisee. So I I thought about it and I thought, well, I don't want to make all these women mostly women, employees, because they already feel like they own their own business. And that's really important. And so I picked the franchise model. I think this is so fascinating that she's a lot, you know, essentially allowing all these other women we talked about in rural towns and all these areas that to feel like they're owning their own business and giving them that type of empowerment um, instead of this employee 
type of atmosphere that she was talking about, I just think is really huge. And that's the other big concept that we have to deal with in this show today, I think, is yes, the fitness component of it, but the business end of things. The fact that this franchise model that she adopted for Jazzercise has really catapulted a lot of women into the business world. And um, I mean, I don't know the straight demographics of those women who typically had these, but I assume that they're moms with kids. And, you know, to be able to have a business like this to cater to other moms is just awesome. Well, and one of the more surprising demographics, actually, Judy says was really important for Jazzercise to grow in those early years. Military was an important feature in how I grew. San Diego was a military town. Lots of uh, the women who became instructors were either in the military or a significant other of someone who was, and they were transferred to other outlying places in the country, and they wanted to keep teaching. That's so fascinating. I mean, in one way, a a great way to spread the jazzercise word. I never would have thought about that. But this did present a problem because she has instructors now all across the country. So how are these instructors going to learn the routines if they're not, you know, in the studio with her? She thought about writing down the routines, but... Well, it's very difficult to uh, interpret choreography from the written page. So luckily, though, in the 1980s and 90s, right after she's franchised, is when VHS tapes and video cameras started to be sold to the public. And so this opened up a world of possibilities. These video recorders and home cameras and everything came out on the market. My husband had been a broadcaster, so we had lots of experience with camera work and all that. So he said, well, let's buy some of those and we can send videotapes out all over the country to the people that have moved and now they can look at the choreography uh, and and that way they'll be able to do it more perfectly. And this is so huge in boutique fitness now today. So even as back in the day when I was a group fitness instructor, uh, I was doing training based off of this. Of course, it's streaming now instead of VHS yeah. tapes or somehow <laughs> through the internet. Um, and, and again, it goes back to this proper form, you, being able to ensure that you are avoiding injury as much as possible because you're actually doing the moves correctly. Here's Casey and Kaylee again from the Bard Code talking about building a community where these type of modifications and proper form are, are just part of the dialogue for everyone, but especially for new and expecting mothers. You know, it's so wonderful to be like, how are you feeling at this like stage? Or how did you feel like when you came back? I hear the conversations go on after class about that, and I just think it's really cool. One, instructors. Mm-hmm. We've had pregnant instructors. We have mm-hmm. a pregnant instructor now. We had two that just had, three just had babies. Mm-hmm. Well, no, four. God, we've had so many babies. Lots of babies. Lots of babies. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, so the instructors have had it, so the instructors then can relate and show, mm-hmm. like, this is what I'm doing, and look how you can still do it if I can be, you know, like, give mm-hmm. you that encouragement, like, I can do this, you can do this. We got this. Let's do it together. I think it's great to provide those modifications to be active through pregnancy and so that women feel like they don't have to stop, right, to experience those um, health benefits for them and their baby. But there are lots of reasons to make modifications, right? Pregnancy is not the only reason that some of us have to change our workout routine. Casey explains it a little bit more. And I think once people start to see other people doing those modifications, then they're just like, this is cool. Everyone's at a different thing. It's your body. It's going to be different. We make a point of saying that. 
everyone's going to work at a different level, want to work at a different level, and need something different. And it takes the right instructor to be able to do that. Yeah, so if you go to one of these classes, everybody is likely to be making some kind of little tweak or adjustment, but for a, a whole range of reasons. But a really big one for a lot of people is knee pain. And it is indicated that women are anywhere from two to ten times more likely to experience knee pain than men. And this is not because we are weaker. It's physics. <laughs> so here is Sarah again from Dirty Strength Radio to explain. Women have slightly wider hips than men, which changes the cue angle. Okay, so the cue angle is the angle between two imaginary lines. Imagine drawing a line from the middle of your kneecap up, and then imagine drawing another line diagonally out from your kneecap to the outside of your hip, just below where you might put your hands when you put your hands on your hips. Now that is the cue angle, the angle between those two lines. And if you can imagine, if you have a bone structure, biologically built to birth children, you will have a greater cue angle than bodies without a birth canal. This can cause the body just functionally to move in a different way than men. So women are prone to dealing more often with hypermobile hips, some anterior knee pain and issues like that. And so it isn't so much that they have to, like women don't necessarily have to do different exercises than men. I've never come across an exercise and I'm like, well, this isn't female friendly. But what is important is that either we, the individual, or a coach or a trainer needs to be paying attention for signs that a woman is dealing with hip instability and maybe adding some extra exercises to her programs. And then it can be even more problematic if a woman is pregnant or early postpartum and she has this high level of relaxant in the body because she's going to be even more stretchy and so she'll be more prone to injuries. We really need to need to be thinking about how, you know, the cue angle and different things of how this impacts women um, differently than men. And so... And it truly changes things. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that angle going more outwards towards the hip from the knee, it does things such as decreases the power output is one thing that's been shown in research, which you'll see pretty clearly in things like a vertical jump, trying to do something like that, lifting off of the ground. Um, and, you know, nobody is saying here that that means that women shouldn't be doing box jumps or <laughs> you should maybe do, be doing more uh, in, in some categories or strengthening some particular muscles to help with stabilization of the kneecap that can sometimes be a little wonky because mm -hmm. of that different angle of the hips. But it is new to be for, for science to be looking into this. But Sarah also mentions relaxin. So we need to emphasize again that this is just one of the body's monthly circulating hormones. It doesn't just come around during pregnancy. Uh, in fact, relaxin and other hormones like estrogen and progesterone are now believed to be involved with female athletes' ACL tears. And not just in general, but ACL tears during one particular time of the month. So I'll show you two graphics here from two different papers. Uh, this first one, well, I'll just have you explain to listeners what you see. All right, so this graph is showing the days of the menstrual cycle, and the X's on here show the ACL rupture. So all those little X's that are marked there, those are the injuries, and they're all clustered, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this graph is, is pretty profound, like the way that it's clustered 
it, you can't argue with it. And th so it's the majority of ACL injuries, they're all surrounding the time of ovulation. And ovulation is the part of the monthly cycle when an egg is released from an ovary. And this happens a little past the midpoint of the monthly cycle for most. And here is another graphic. And this is from a separate study, but looking at the same idea. And we are looking at that hormone again, so aptly named relaxin. So they're measuring when are the highest levels of relaxin and trying to see if that would tell them something about female ACL injuries. And it turns out that the highest amount of relaxin is in the luteal phase. And you see that written there? Yeah, yeah. All the other little bars on the bar chart are very small. Right. And so the luteal phase, this is key because this happens right after ovulation. And the name luteal comes from this mass of cells formed from the encasement around the egg that was just ovulated. And this mass of cells is called the corpus luteum. Uh, from the Latin word luteus, meaning saffron, because, because the mass of cells shows up as yellow, like the herb saffron. So, but the point is that this yellow mass of cells secretes relaxin. So right after it gets ovulated, then this corpus luteum is left behind and it secretes relaxin. And because we have receptors for relaxin all across the body, including the ACL around the knee, it's theorized that relaxin and its other hormonal playmates are to blame for the fact that women are three to six times more likely to have ACL injuries than men. That is interesting. I mean, I knew that women were more likely to have ACL injuries, but... Yeah, and so yeah. now it's not only like, how do you train, but when? Yeah. When do you train? And the fact that this information is now finally being looked into and treated as something valid. Yeah. So on one hand, this acknowledgement seems positive and way overdue. Uh, and it's great to see it being reflected in science and in fitness. But on the other hand, simultaneously, our society is showing more acceptance now to the fact that sex determination happens on a spectrum. You know, there's this long list of body parts and parts within parts and chemicals to go along with those parts. And sometimes whatever combination you're born with, it lands you at one end of the spectrum or the other, either male or female. But there's a growing awareness that there's a lot of combinations of those parts and chemicals that don't necessarily put someone in either of those binary categories, man or woman. So this brings up the point that while female-centered fitness has done a lot to make fitness more welcoming for mothers and for people who identify as and who society sees as women, there are still a lot of people who don't feel welcomed in these spaces. Yeah, there are locker rooms, and which one do you go to? This is Amber Quinones. She and I talked about the issues of inclusivity facing boutique fitness today. My name is Amber Quinones, and I am a fitness instructor and general wellness enthusiast at the Assembly and at SoulCycle. And as a fitness instructor, a lot of her personal goals echo that community sentiment from Judy when she started Jazzercise 50 years ago. With, I would say, Amber has an 
extra added awareness of how in our modern world, sometimes fitness spaces can feel unwelcoming. Huge part of what I aim to do is to make people feel accepted and included and build community in spaces that can traditionally feel a little bit isolating. And Amber says that as someone working from within the industry, the lack of accessibility is cause for concern. And it is really challenging some days for me as an instructor to teach these classes and see how much of a transformation, both physically and mentally, um, some of my clients go through and acknowledge that I am unable to deliver this experience to some of the people who might need it the most, some people who are battling really intense issues and can't financially bring themselves to a soul cycle, for example. And that's also just the state of things. Fitness and, and wellness as an industry is a really booming industry and there's a lot of money behind it. The people aren't that interested in losing money. Yeah, I mean, and as, as I said earlier with full disclosure that I work at the front desk for Kaylee and Casey. And I do that because I get a membership by working there. And that that is, is one of the less appealing things about this industry. And also the ironic part of the story, because this was started to be something ultra accessible. And Judy did all she could by hosting classes in things like, like school gymnasiums and the library basement to make it accessible to everyone, childcare for a quarter. But now, I mean, it really paved the way for something that is markedly inaccessible for a lot of people. And especially, you know, if you are somebody who is struggling to put food on the table or to make those ends meet, it's really challenging to be able to pull together those funds for some of this more boutique fitness types of things. Absolutely. And because economics don't happen in a vacuum in our society, it gets really complicated really fast. Because race and class are so intensely intertwined, it also breeds a sense of... um, a diversity issue. Definitely. And it's an industry that's brought a lot to a lot of people, but because it's an industry, I think that is kind of the tangled knot that it's has gotten itself into. Because I think the question for a lot of people who own these businesses is, how could we survive as a business if we lower our prices? Uh, here's Casey again from the barcode. It kind of sucks. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's hard because you're like, I want everyone to be able to come. But then it's like, to survive also... I don't know if we could. I, this, it's a hard question. I mean, I don't have an answer. I wish I did. I mean, it'd be great if someone could open like almost a nonprofit gym where you had like someone giving funds that supported this thing that you could offer this reduced, you know, membership for people that are having hard times in an area of the town that maybe needs some kind of wellness. Amber weighs in here too. I just think there's a huge opportunity on the table for a lot of these spaces to offer whether it's called a scholarship or discounted pricing or whatever, um, to make their space more accessible. It needs to be, going back to Judy, you know, in those community centers and those libraries, kind of similar to what Judy was doing from the start of figuring out, um, you know, maybe partnering the boutique with an, you know, existing entity. And I know some of that is going on, but... 
again, the cost and finding funds to be able to offer that more frequently. Like it just it feels like big systemic changes or structural changes that need to to take place here. So there is another key factor, though, in terms of accessibility that's maybe is a little bit more possible to change on an individual level. And that is the language that we all use. And Amber Quinones has based one of her classes on this idea. Her class is called Thick, and the focus of the class is abs, butt, and thighs. But before talking about the class, Amber tells us a little bit about the word thick and how that has been used in our society. With the advent, if you will, of the word thick, you don't usually see, let's say, 30-ish year old black women with big busts hips and thighs. You're usually seeing white women who are young and rosy and, again, relatively thin, but just have a little extra cushion by virtue of lifting weights or doing strength training specifically for those areas of their bodies. It's just different, even though it's the same word. Yes, the framing of what we call it is a huge thing in terms of trying to encourage people or make them welcome even before getting in the door. It's a marketing campaign, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so so depending on, on your age, your involvement with social media and things like that, this word may or may not be something that's familiar to you. So the word thick, which is sometimes spelled with two C's, has been, by many people's account, been taken over by the media and others in a way that some would argue to be cultural appropriation. Because the word thick used in that way for someone's body traditionally comes from African-American vernacular. And while many women of color still do not feel comfortable in mainstream fitness settings, that very industry is now making money off of that word through things like clothing sales and things like that, branding with the word thick on it. So something that I sought to do by creating my class called thick was almost that reclamation of that word and feeling like, okay, it is now super popular to go to a butt legs and abs class. That's great. I can definitely teach that. People are asking that of me. And I want to call it thick because I as a woman of color want to make sure that word sticks with women of color and I want to make this a space that feels inclusive of all body types and celebratory of all body types. I think that's great. I mean, I think um, Amber mentioned she is a woman of color and she's the one instructing it, right? So to have the role model is huge. And not only though having more women of color as instructors, but also the language that we use, I think is is one really key thing that Amber is calling out here that it's not by any means this like be all end all solution for anything, but just recognizing that our language is powerful. Yeah. You know, similarly, if we think about people who are gender non-conforming or non-binary, you know, the word they is very powerful. And Merriam-Webster Dictionary just named they word of the year at the end of 2019 in this like very concrete way of acknowledging how powerful language can be. Interesting. Yeah. And that's something else that Amber and I talked about is the way that we talk about these issues and frankly, whether or not we choose to talk about it or just ignore it. And the thing is, it can be hard to talk about. So I do believe there's so much fear right now of people being called 
politically incorrect or dare I say it racist or sexist or any of the ifs. We're all so terrified of being called out on bad behavior that sometimes there's the sense of inaction and inertia and that's somehow preferable to trying. I think it can be fearful to talk about different things and even, you know, going back to, you know, like the thick discussion of if I, I think, I think being open to those conversations so you could ask somebody what is okay to say, you know, what the, the terminology that they feel like is right for that situation is a, is a key factor. And I think that we have seen real change come about recently when people start talking loudly about issues like this. And one way we've seen that is through the body positivity movement in fashion and fitness recently. I mean, people really started speaking up and demanding that there be more models on the runway above a size zero. And so when the conversation on these issues got loud enough, things started to change. Uh, Kaylee from The Barcode says that some of that change is now being reflected in fitness studios, too. The models that we're seeing now are not your size, like, zero models. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of crosses over to us. It's like, we don't need you to try to be like a size zero. We need you to just find strength in yourself. And I think that's huge. I think it goes back to that, you know, it's not just about weight loss, right? You know, working on those things and feeling stronger generally helps women to feel better about themselves and the things that they can do in their activities of daily living. And Casey and Kaylee say much the same thing. They kind of preach that it's it's about strength. It's not about calories. That's not the point. It's the point would be like, look how awesome your body is and what you can how do strong with you, can you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And celebrating your body is probably one of the hardest thing as a female to do. It's a hard thing. And like you should celebrate the not like, well, I burned 40 calories. So now I don't feel bad about eating that one cracker. Like eat the cracker. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I agree. No, eat the cracker. <laughs> and, and Amber has a really similar message in her classes too. I think the way I teach is quite literally by telling people to take up as much space as possible. I usually start all of my classes at the assembly, all of my thick classes with people taking a power pose to be as big as they can possibly be um, intentionally to combat that idea that we are here to work on shrinking our waistline because that's not it. We're working on expansiveness. We're working on showing up for ourselves we're working on showing up for other people and that requires you to be big and alive and that's the approach I take in my teaching whether or not the moves are different doesn't really matter to me so much as people are making that sort of connection to the message I have to share which is you're worthy you take up space I just I just sat up straighter in my seat (laughs) I Uh, I know I think that's amazing and um, I think that that's definitely needed. There, again, there's so many more benefits to physical activity than just that weight loss that helping women to frame that of, you know, like Amber said, like, I'm worthy. And, you know, Casey and Kaylee's messages, too, of like, hey, you are strong. You did this um, are so much more important. And I think I think Judy really strikes me as someone who is not afraid to take up space. You know, you don't start a worldwide dance franchise without claiming space. Uh, when I asked her about how it was to own her own large-scale business as a female 50 years ago, she told me that how she handled things had a lot to do with her mother. 
I got from my mother a large amount of confidence in who I am and what I'm doing. So I didn't let anything stop me. I, um, I knew that times were changing and women were being more accepted, but that there was a very, very long road to walk down before we became equal in every aspect, and frankly, there still is. I feel like for the longest time, every time you'd hear about this business starting or this business starting. Or Forbes. It's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. always like, this guy, this guy, yeah. oh, one woman. Mm-hmm. This guy, this guy, one woman. And Casey and Kaylee say that one of the biggest changes that they've experienced is seeing women as more visible in the business sector, literally taking up more space in the room. And it was a really cool thing when we were at the owners' conference to see a room full of, like, I think 40 people and that's not even all of them yeah but like 40 females who all owned a business and some of them very successfully that have five studios under them and are keep opening because they are doing something right for their community that their community is responding to it's really cool to see this shift where more women are taking that leap into running a business and owning a business rather than, you know, just working another job and having, like, the men front that. Especially when, you know, we're talking about doing that role modeling type too to have the business owner understand, hey, I've been through pregnancy or I've been through these knee issues or I understand the hormonal fluctuations and, you you, you know, just remind And I'm going to build a business around it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I think, you know, one of the key ways that, to encourage that message is by having female business owners out there really pushing it. It seems like there has to be some opportunity here too to continue working in that direction and making all people visible in this sector, which is where we're still lagging behind when we are missing the representation of gender non-conforming people and people of color in this industry. But it seems like this is an industry that should be able to do it, right? I think definitely. And we talked about, you know, the bigger society issue of costs. Like, I have no doubt that we will figure it out, right? There is more and more movement of how to incorporate the fitness and and different types of nonprofits. And there's a lot of great work going on in our community. Um, And I believe that, you know, if we just keep pushing the envelope and pushing the edge, that we'll be able to figure out how to help Regardless of, you know, income, race, ethnicity, et cetera, um, everyone find a way that they enjoy being physically active in a supportive atmosphere, as we've talked about throughout this episode. Well, and the thing that Amber and I talked about, too, at the very end is that how we it has to be a we doing it. This is all of our problem. And that Amber says, you know, the hands off approach doesn't seem to be the answer. Instead, what the world needs are more people who are willing to put their stake in the ground, stand up, support the people who are experiencing these issues. So what I ask of my friends is whenever I feel like I'm experiencing something and they're coming from a place of power to use their power to open a door or create some sort of access in one way or another. I mean, I think what Amber said is right on um, is we just and know through research of, you know, how integral movement and activity is into everybody's life and um, that it is something that should be thought about, whether that be not only the physical health, but the mental health and other aspects as well. Right, exactly. I just, I keep thinking about that quote from Judy at the very beginning when she's talking about her grandfather in Red Oak, Iowa. 
I remember sitting on my grandfather's lap and him saying to me, now Judy, you remember that you gotta keep your feet on the ground and that nobody is any better than you and you certainly aren't any better than anybody else. You have been listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America, a production of Omaha Public Radio. We owe a huge thank you to our special guest, Dr. Danae Dinkle, as well as all of the women that were interviewed. That's Kaylee Rader, Casey Baum, Amber Quinones, Sarah Smith, and of course, Judy Shepard Missit. We also thank Judy for the photographs we've posted on our website of the early years of Jazzercise and of her family in Iowa. This episode's listening party was fed by the Grove Juicery in Omaha, Nebraska. This podcast is produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Joshua LeBure, and Todd Hatton. Our theme music is written and performed by Nathan Blake Lynn, and our sound designer is Ben Solee. To request citations from any of the research used in this episode or to make suggestions for future episodes, you can contact the show on Instagram or Twitter. That's at KIOS Omaha. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming monthly episodes of Made in the Middle. <laughs>